PTJ podcasts are made possible by the American Physical Therapy Association. Physical therapists diagnose and treat people of all ages with all types of health conditions to help keep them moving and functioning in daily life. Welcome to the Craigcast from Physical Therapy. Each month, PTJ Editor-in-Chief Dr. Rebecca Craig offers her take on the articles appearing in this month's PTJ. Here is Rebecca Craig. Hello, this is Becky Craig, Editor-in-Chief of Physical Therapy, and I am delighted to invite you to the October 2014 issue of Physical Therapy. I think this is a great issue. There is a nice variety, and I hope that each of you will find something that is exciting to you. The first article is entitled, Effectiveness of Canalith Repositioning Procedure in the Treatment of Benign Paroxysmal Positional Vertigo, which I will now call BPPV. This is a LEAP, or a Linking Evidence in Practice, article, and I think it is spectacular. For anyone who has questions about how to treat persons with BPPV, this is a very instructional article. In addition, it really looks carefully at the evidence that's available, and what I like about it is the Cochrane Review was done originally in 2002 and then updated twice. And so it's nice to see that the Cochrane Review is updated and, in fact, found even more supportive evidence for the use of a particular technique in treating BPPV. Please look at this article. This is not a leap or a Cochrane review that says more research is necessary. In fact, this one really does talk about how effective a particular technique is on short and long-term reduction of symptoms associated with this diagnosis. The next article is entitled Effective Therapeutic Aquatic Exercise on Symptoms and Function Associated with Lower Limb Osteoarthritis. This is a systematic review with meta-analysis. First author is Benjamin Waller from the University of Yelvaska in Finland. And it's a really nice, diverse group of scientists and clinicians who have come together to talk about using therapeutic exercise in the water for persons with lower limb osteoarthritis. The authors did a systematic review, and they found 11 studies Again, what's nice about the study is that using outcome measures that I think most of you will be familiar with that report a reduction in pain, function, physical functioning, and quality of life, there's a very nice suggestion that aquatic exercise is effective in either relieving pain or improving function for persons with lower limb osteoarthritis. Now, as is usual, The outcome measures are very heterogeneous. The dose is very difficult to determine. The ability to reproduce the actual exercise that was done in the studies is always a problem. So I thank the authors for this very careful review. I think those of you who are interested in using aquatic exercise on symptom and function in persons with osteoarthritis will find this a very useful guideline for future research and suggestions for the clinical practice. The next article is entitled Effectiveness of Peer Assessment for Implementing a Dutch Physical Therapy Low Back Pain Guideline. This is a cluster randomized control trial. The first author is Simone van Doelman, and colleagues are from several different universities within the Netherlands. The group in the Netherlands, because they've had more experience 
than some of the clinicians in the United States with guidelines have found that just publishing them alone doesn't work. So this study really looked at two different methods that are commonly used to try to help clinicians buy into the clinical practice guideline. And in this case, it was related to low back pain. They looked at two methods. One was peer assessment, and then the other was a case-based discussion. They have outcome measures that assessed performance at baseline and at six months, and they looked at knowledge and guideline-consistent reasoning. What they found was that the peer assessment method was much more effective than the case-based discussions and that the clinicians retained the knowledge and continued to use it in the clinical setting. I thank the authors for moving us um, to the next step on sort of clinical practice guidelines and beyond. The next article is entitled, Pain Interference is Associated with Psychological Concerns Related to Falls in Community-Dwelling Older Adults, a Multi-Site Observational Study. This study is led by Brendan Stubbs from the University of Greenwich in London, England. I found this a really thoughtful paper. These authors really talked about a variety of factors in addition to self-efficacy that may feed into a person's concern about falling. The authors were really investigating the role that pain may play as an independent variable that has not been examined in the older population. There were 169 persons that participated in the study. What they concluded is that pain is an important, independent, contributing factor related to falls. In terms of physical therapist's practice, I think it's pretty obvious that we have two potential directions to go with this kind of information. First of all, if a person is in pain, to try to determine the cause of pain and mediate it. And secondly, in doing screening, to screen not only for self-efficacy and balanced confidence, but also to consider another source of fear of falling, and that would be pain. So I thank them for their thoughtful work. Next article is entitled, Multidisciplinary Consensus Guidelines for Managing Trigger Finger, Results from the European Hand Guide Study. The first author is Bianca Husted, and she's from Erasmus MC University Medical Center, Rotterdam. This is a consensus guideline related to managing trigger finger, and the authors develop a Delphi consensus strategy. They brought together 35 experts that included both hand therapists, OTs and PTs, as well as hand surgeons. They reviewed the literature, and they came up with a consensus. They agreed upon methods that should be successful, as indicated by the literature, in treating trigger finger. Again, I don't think anyone will be surprised that there's a recommendation for the use of orthoses, corticosteroid injections, corticosteroid injections plus orthoses, and a surgery are all treatment options. What I found most useful in this consensus guideline was a decision-making tree, helping the clinician decide what the severity of the trigger finger was and what was most appropriate for that level of severity. So there's some classification presented. Again, the limitations to this type of study is that it's consensus based on 35 experts, but it's very nice to see a document that allows other investigators to challenge and gives guidelines for clinicians that may not be familiar with treatment of trigger finger. So thank you for submitting that article.
The next article is entitled Initiation of Movement and Energy Expenditure in Children with Developmental Delay, a Case Control Study. The first author is Joyce Chen. She and her colleagues are all from Changgung University in Taiwan. There were 12 children that had developmental delay, and they were age-matched to sample of 12 children that were typically developing. Again, there's a common, and I'm going to say perhaps myth, that children with developmental delays are more sedentary and have lower levels of physical activity related to their developmental delay. The authors were really interested in understanding whether it was true that children with developmental delay are in fact more sedentary and have lower levels of physical activity. The authors took very well-controlled walking tasks and analyzed the 12 children with and without developmental delay. And they looked at energy cost in walking, and they also looked at cognition using reaction time. In terms of physiologic costs of walking, I think when we think about how one measures that, we usually think about a mask on the face and measuring O2 consumption, CO2 production. Well, wearing a mask is very difficult for children, and they talked about the difficulty in using a mask in children with developmental delay. So rather, what they used is something called physiologic cost index, or the PCI. Many of you may already be aware of the PCI. A higher PCI indicates greater energy expenditure. One reason to read this study is if you're not familiar with PCI, this might be a really useful tool clinically. What the authors found was that when they used the PCI in this walking task, typically to developing children and children with developmental delay actually had similar energy cost for walking. The problem seemed to be focused on movement initiation. The ability to initiate the task was where the children with developmental delay were the slowest. And again, it's a small study, but I think it really has interesting clinical implications, and I encourage you to read it, particularly if you're working with children. The next paper is entitled, Can Physical Therapists Deliver a Pain Coping Skills Program? An Examination of Training Processes and Outcomes. The question that the authors ask is, can physical therapists be trained to deliver pain coping skills? Historically, when we think about physical therapy, we always think about somebody providing a physical intervention. And certainly, traditionally, there's been someone who provides the psychological intervention. Many of you know that there's been a blending, particularly in the past, I would say, five years, we're looking at bio psychosocial models where there's an expectation that the clinician, physical therapist in our case, is providing both the physical and the psychological intervention combined. So this is a study where a psychologist was asked to help a group of physical therapists develop skills in pain coping and be able to transfer that information to patients. So there were 11 physical therapists who were trained, and they were trained to deliver a 10-session pain program. And the number of patients who had knee OA were 222. So there was a workshop format taught by a psychologist, and then the whole process and the outcomes were reported in this study. 
I am really excited about this study. I think it lays out a very nice program that others may be interested in duplicating, and the methods that were employed to determine whether it was effective or not was excellent. The next article is entitled Quality of Life and Self-Reported Lower Extremity Function in Adults with HIV-Related Distal Sensory Polyneuropathy. Mary Lou Galantino from Richard Stockton College of New Jersey led a team from a number of different sites. What the team was interested in determining was whether there was a tool that could distinguish persons with HIV and those who also had distal sensory polyneuropathy. And so were the functional scales sensitive in discriminating the distal sensory polyneuropathy? They used the lower extremity functional scale and the lower limb functional index. And basically what they did was compare persons with and without the polyneuropathy to determine whether one of these tools was better at identifying the functional limitations for those with polyneuropathy. Their conclusion is that function was absolutely more impaired in participants with HIV disease and distal sensory polyneuropathy. They recommend the use of the LLFI as being more likely to capture the limitations in function than the LEFS. The next article is entitled Barriers, Benefits, and Strategies for Physical Therapy in Patients with Schizophrenia. The first author is Cecilia Rastad. She's from Uppsala University in Sweden, as are her colleagues. This paper carefully describes persons with schizophrenia and the opportunity that the physical therapist has in treating persons with schizophrenia. It described 20 patients who either had schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, and they were in three different outpatient clinics in Sweden. They looked at barriers that would obstruct physical activity. They looked at reward systems, the motivation for performing physical activity, and they also looked at strategies that could encourage the engagement of physical activity in this patient population. What I remember as a physical therapist student long time ago at Duke University that the physical therapy classroom was part of the clinic downstairs, and several of us used to study in the evening. In the evening, physical therapists would bring patients down from, I'm going to use the old term of psych ward, but they were patients who were in the locked ward. They'd bring them down into the department at night so they could engage them in physical therapy. So it's exciting for me to see this carefully described barriers to the patient population with schizophrenia related to physical activity, and it really opens opportunities for physical therapist intervention. So I thank the authors for this careful and thoughtful paper. The next article is entitled, Stepping Asymmetry Among Individuals with Unilateral Transtubial Limb Loss Might Be Functional in Terms of Gait Stability. Laura Hack and her colleagues are from VU University in Amsterdam, the Netherlands. There's an assumption that we've always had that symmetrical gait is the most efficient and the most effective. So a goal in many of our interventions is to restore symmetrical gait. These authors are saying maybe stepping asymmetry is all right in the patient populations with unilateral transtibial limb loss. The study involved 10 persons that were long-term users 
of a prosthetic device. They walked for four minutes on a treadmill, and their step lengths were examined in terms of symmetry. What the authors concluded is that in this small sample of 10 persons, that they did demonstrate a smaller step length and a forward foot placement on the non-prosthetic side, the non-prosthetic step. And their hypothesis is that they did that in an effort to provide stability. So they were concerned that they felt that the persons were walking with the shorter step on the non-prosthetic side to increase their backward margin of stability. So I found this very interesting, and I encourage you to read it. Obviously, they have additional work that they would like to do, but I think it's a really exciting and different hypothesis. The next article is entitled Variability in Postural Control with and Without Balance-Based Torso Weighting in People with Multiple Sclerosis and Healthy Controls. The first author is Charlotte Hunt. She and her colleagues are from the University of California, San Francisco and Samuel Merritt University. This is another stability issue. The authors talk about the problems that persons with multiple sclerosis have in maintaining balance. They are interested in seeing if there are methods to improve their standing balance. The study includes 20 participants with multiple sclerosis and 18 healthy controls. Although it's a laboratory-based study, I think it's an important beginning because there's so little known about movement disorders in persons with multiple sclerosis. For those of you who have treated, you know that that's in a sense a wastebasket category in that the variety of diagnoses and the levels of disability associated with that diagnosis are very wide. These authors have really begun to look at the possibility of classifying balance disorders in the population. The next study is entitled, A Physical Function Intensive Care Test, Implementation in Survivors of Critical Illness. The first author is Amy Norton Craft from the University of Colorado. This particular tool, entitled the Physical Function Intensive Care Test, was used in Australia successfully. And so the authors, led by Amy Norton Craft, were interested in knowing whether the tool would also be useful in the settings in the United States. This is a study that's nested within a randomized clinical trial. The study ran from 2009 to 2012 and included four intensive care units in the Denver area. Although the small sample size is a limitation, what the study indicates is that this tool is feasible. And I know, again, those of you who are in the intensive care or acute care settings, how much you would like a useful tool that examined patients' abilities and was responsive to change. We only have one case report this month. It is entitled, Postural Complexity Influences Development in Infants Born Preterm with Brain Injury, Relating Perception Action Theory to Three Cases. The first author is Stacey Dusing from Virginia Commonwealth University. Those of you familiar with perception action theory will find this a really nice paper because it takes theory and applies it to three infants who are born preterm with demonstrable periventricular white matter injury. One thing that we all know about is when we think about postural control, particularly learning about postural control, it's remarkably complex. 
you have to be able to control your body and orient it and all of the segments of the body to the specific environment. As one learns postural control, it becomes less complex. What the authors did was look at the complexity of posture in these three infants who were born preterm with white matter disease to see how their postural complexity evolved and whether it was different or similar to typically developing children. And again, I think it's a great opportunity to take perception action theory, which proposes that action provides perceptual information that influences movement and your ability to interact and really applies it to these children. The final article in the October issue is the 45th Mary McMillan Lecture. The title is, If Greatness is a Goal, This is presented by Dr. James Gordon from the University of Southern California. It was extremely well received at the conference, and I know that you're going to enjoy listening and reading it. Please pay attention to his message, which is about um, the number of physical therapy schools in the United States and uh, the quality of physical therapy schools. So he really challenges us to think about education of physical therapists, students in particular. Enjoy your October. I look forward to talking to you in November. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening. If you have a question for Dr. Craig, email ptj at apta.org. And be sure to include Craigcast in the subject line. This has been a production of APTA.